This is The Other 14 Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Other 14 Podcast, the only podcast that forgets all about the so-called Big Six and focuses just on the other 14 teams of the Premier League. The other four teams are still chipping away at the top four hopes of the so-called Big Six with a great win for Leicester at home to Spurs, while Brentford proved to be the bogey team for another Big Six side, with Tony's goal stealing a point for Frank's men at the Emirates. This week, as always, I'm joined by Tom. Hello, Reese. Hello, Tom. Um, Tom, this week, it seems that everyone just wants to talk about the same thing on every media platform after this game week. And that thing is VAR. I don't want to go on about it. Can you just give me 30 seconds on it so we can swiftly move on and not talk about it for the rest of the episode? I can give you a one-liner. VAR is shit. Actually, no. You know what? It is the people in charge of VAR. And we've discussed this many, many times this season. So like you, I don't really want to be badgering on about it. But basically what happened, we've had, like I think, three separate incidents this week. Um, or at least three standout incidents this week. Uh, one in the Brentford game where I think Tony's goal was probably should have been given as offsides. Uh, you've got the Palace game against Brighton where I believe, was it March's goal? There was an, Are you talking about the offside decision that was very borderline? Yeah, you... that was that one, but I think there was another one, wasn't there? Uh, either, either way. There, there, was... There, was, there, was, there was a VR decision in the, uh, in the Palace-Brighton game. And also West Ham might consider themselves very lucky that they didn't concede a penalty against Chelsea in the dying minutes, but we do not care because um, that is against the big six. But also that goes for the fact that West Ham were absolutely robbed at Stamford Bridge when um, it went to VAR because Bowen allegedly fouled Mendy before Corne scored, what I think would have been the winner. So... It, that yeah. kind of balances itself it, it, it out. It does balance itself out, yeah. Um, and it's probably a lot longer than 30 seconds. But yeah, we don't really go too much into it because we already know that VAR and the Premier League at the moment does not go hand in hand, and, unfortunately. And for me, it wasn't even just all the... It, like, don't get me wrong. VAR, the referees who are watching the replays, not doing a good enough job. Um, but we'll move on to the Southampton game in a bit. But there was an absolutely awful refereeing decision made in that game, which wasn't even VAR related. So... Um, we'll talk about oh, that. Yeah, the red, uh... the buzz, the most bizarre red card going. Anyway, first things first. Over to you, Tom, with the classified results for the game week. So here are the classified results for this game week. We have West Ham one, 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 Brentford one, Crystal Palace one, Brian Albion one, Fulham two, Nottingham Forest nil, Leicester City four, one. Southampton 1, Wolverhampton Wanderers 2, AFC Bournemouth 1, Newcastle United 1, Leeds United 0, 2, 3, Aston Villa 1. And that is, of course, with the Merseyside derby still to play out this evening as of recording. On Sunday, the 12th of February, Southampton FC released the following statement. Southampton Football Club can confirm it has parted company with men's first team manager Nathan Jones. First team coaches Chris Cohen and Alan Sheehan have also left the club. 
Jones with just a points per game total of 0.38 and his own fans chanting, Nathan Jones, your football is shit. I don't even think a corpse would be surprised by this sacking. Um, Tom, it seemed almost inevitable when we spoke about it last week and it has happened exactly how we thought it would. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I, I sort of, I think I jumped the gun a little bit too early last week by saying, you know, when we were talking about Nathan Jones as if he'd been sacked already. Um, he, he pretty much was, I think, with, with the way that game went. Um, I think it was basically a results-based thing. Um, had he managed to get the win, um, which going down how his entire reign at Southampton has gone down so far, was not likely. It's turned out to be that way. He's got the sack and it just ends a very weird period of time for Southampton Football Club. I, ultimately, I think that move has ridiculously backfired on them. Um, and they, again, in the manager's market, trying to save their season. Absolutely. It was, they're going to have to dip back in after sacking Hassan Hootel in November. So since Jones took charge of the Saints, he has overseen eight Premier League fixtures with just the one win and seven defeats, which is quite a damning It doesn't make it for pretty record. reading, does it? No, not in the slightest. Obviously, they had a reasonable League Cup run, but they were then knocked out at the semi-final stage to Newcastle. Um, but otherwise... Pretty dreadful going for the lads. Yeah. Um. So, in the Saints, a, yeah, in the Saints game, they actually went one nil up, which was um against Wolves, which is uncommon for Southampton to actually score under Jones, let alone be winning in a game, especially um, at home as well. Exactly at home, St Mary's started to resemble a ground that was rocking. I think would be fair to say because. They're winning a game. In that moment, they were doubling Nathan Jones's points total <laughs> at the oh. club. Which, um, but then they went down to ten men, which we mentioned briefly in the intro, and which we'll dive into now. Um, one of the most bizarre sending off for Wolves going, if I'm honest. So yeah. the situation was, um, Lamina. It was Lamina, wasn't it? It was Lamina. Yeah. yeah. So, Lamina, who was already on a yellow card, and I don't know what that yellow card was already for. Yeah. Anyway, he tries making a break out of the Wolves box, and he feels that he has been fouled by a number of players, uh, of Southampton players, including getting his shirt pulled. They concede possession. The ball then goes out for a throwing. You have both Moutinho and Neves, who start heading towards the referee and give him a bit of jip of ref why are you making this decision you then have Lamina who's following up probably 10 yards behind them who hasn't said anything at this point to the referee he gets close to the referee and the referee pulls out a yellow card which is his second of the game and sends him off I don't know how that decision has come about because you can give one to a player that has actually started berating the ref because obviously dissent. But the yep. fact that the ref has given a yellow card to a player who hasn't said anything feels I don't know. It feels like quite the rogue decision and yeah, the sign I... of a referee that isn't in control of the situation. 
yeah, he, he didn't look um, in control. At, I think he did lose a little bit of control of that game. And I, we don't know the, the full details of what might have been said by Lamina, but it did seem like a very sort of trigger-happy decision for the referee just to basically show him the second yellow. Suddenly realised, oh, hang on a minute, I've booked you before, literally just a few minutes ago, and I'm going to have to give you your marching orders. We did see something similar, and I don't know if this is directed with new Howard, um, with Howard Webb coming in charge of um, basically the head of the referees, mm-hmm. um, with Ruben Diaz in the City game against Villa um, on Sunday. Um, there was a free kick given against Villa just outside their penalty area. Um, two City players go out. I can't remember who it was exactly, but then out of nowhere, Diaz as the third player runs up and starts remonstrating with the referee. Um, and the referee sees Ruben Diaz as the third player come in and immediately go point one, two, three, you booked. So I, I don't know if this is a new sort of but, new tact from referees in general, just to be a bit more sort of but, take a bit more control against like players like remonstrating or not. But, but it, it was very sort of quick what, how it me, happened Dan in the um, Southampton game with Lamina. Don't get me wrong, I don't believe players showing referees enough respect. 100%. But in that instance, when the referee, don't know his name, don't care to know his name because he's clearly not had a good one. For the benefit but of the tape, the referee is Jared Ah, So he's got the Wolves captain going up to him and a very experienced player in Yamatino coming up to him. And then he could have a reasonable conversation with them at this point. And if he thinks they're crossing the line, which they might be, then they seem like the right people to have the conversation with yeah. and they issue the booking. But to just pull it out on the third guy, it seems such an unfit rule just to be able to go one, through, one two, three, you're gone. Yeah. The third player to give them a booking. But also, you see... Referees being surrounded by far more than three. Even this weekend, there were instances where I've saw referees being hounded by more than one, uh, more than three players, and nothing was done. Yeah. Once again, it boils down to consistency. And look, you know what? If this is what it takes to stop players surrounding, that they're just going to go one, two, three, you're gone, and the third player gets the booking, then by all means, you go for that. But in that instance, it seemed like an absolutely silly decision that potentially could have ruined the game for Wolves. Yeah. But getting well, back... They didn't because they were playing Southampton under but, Nathan Jones, but, but yeah. But, get, but getting back to it, following his um, post-match interview from last week where Jones declared himself as one of the top managers in England and one of the most aggressive managers... I'm Manager sure, extraordinaire. I'm not sure what stats he's using to measure aggressiveness, but... Um, he decided that the reason that they lost that game was because of the red card, which you don't often see that um, a, a manager where your team has taken the lead and the opposition has a red card. You get and the then, player advantage. Yeah, sure. So, that makes sense. So this is what he uh, told Sky Sports. He said, to me, the 10 men was to our detriment because it made it a free hit for them in terms of stuff. It added more pressure on us, and it shouldn't be like that. We should then control the game. In terms of stuff, is he trying to blag his way through like an English GCSE exam or something like that? And you could uh, tell Romeo and Juliet loved each other because they kissed and stuff. Stuff. Um, <laughs> like, 
I I kind of get what he means in that if you go if you go a man down, it does change a team's approach yeah. to the game. It... Normally, if a team has got something going for them, like they've got their drawing or winning and they go a man down, that normally does create this kind of collective of we're going to hold tight and defend deep yeah. and we're going to be difficult to break down and it kind of does galvanise the team. I've never heard it in terms of, oh, we're one down in goals, we're one down in men and so we're going to go and kick on and win the game. It doesn't... I don't think football often works like that and I don't think it's necessarily worked in this instance. I just think he's very much clutching at straws with uh, with using this yeah. as an excuse. A man who I think knew his time was basically up and just wanted to get through an interview. Um, you I, saw it at the end of the game as well, not even going up to the fans and sort of clapping, acknowledge their existence. He just went straight off down that In tunnel. all fairness, I, think I don't think he was... I it, think it he been might have gone to clap, but I think but... he would have just got even more abuse yeah. because there were fans there with a... I don't know if you saw, but a fan with a giant P45 Yeah, for him. the standard, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think he knew his time was up. To be fun, uh, to be honest, um, he, he basically, I think, I think he said in his one of his post match interviews. Also, he's like, I just don't know if I'm going to be here sort of next week or, or he, not. I he just, says yeah. he can't deal with the pressure. Which, in yeah. all fairness, if you're not cut out for it, you're not cut out for it. But it seems an odd time now to be so genuine about it and not, yeah, like. Yeah, I thought, it... I thought, unfortunately for him, and you know, I don't want to sort of dig into him too hard, but I, I just think it was probably a step too far for him um, mm-hmm. coming into a Premier League job such as Southampton. Um, I'm not saying that Southampton is a difficult job. Um, but it's Southampton in a relegation, relegate in a relegation well, battle with a poor as well. squad. It, yeah, it's, it's not like he's had the summer to build and develop. Yeah, it's coming in the middle of the season. Well, we did have like a World Cup break to sort of gel in the players, but then again, he gelled in players in and tried to compromise. Um, on on certain, you know, it was it was just it, it was always I think destined to fail, mm. um, unfortunately. Um, and like like we said, Southampton looking again to try and dip their hand into the manager market, where at the moment Jesse March stands as favourite at one to four odds on. One to four. Whoa. Yeah. Is is he in talks or something? Or do they know something we don't? He's clear the clear favourite on according to Sky Bet. There are obviously other betting providers are available. Um the next um next down is Stevie G at seven to one. So clearly there Ooh, must be wow, something. There about must Justin be something March. some truth ringing in there. Because well, I I Jesse like Jesse Mike we talked about last week, obviously, because he's he lost his job with Leeds. If you were to like compare the two managers at the time at which Southampton were looking for a manager after they sacked Ralph. Comparing between Jesse March and Nathan Jones, you have the choice. You'd go for Jesse March, right? You would, but my only thing is with Jesse Marsh is that I don't think he's particularly good in setting up a team defensively. Mm. And that does seem to be a bit of an issue for Southampton in that they also don't score goals. Yeah, but then you almost need, unfortunately, you need the Daesh approach of tightening up at the back and trying to steal one nils. Can he do two jobs at once? Well, you know, Leeds are looking for a manager as well. So yeah. put him on, put him on the payroll of three clubs and yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, so with Jones' sacking on Sunday, he has now joined Marsh, Lampard, Hasenhutl, Gerrard, Lager and Parker um, here with other 14 sackings, making it now seven of the other 14 imagine. Seven 
of the other 14 managers to have lost their job this season. Admittedly, it's a double hit for Southampton. Yeah. Um, with the mad amount of money that is in the game now and the amount that these clubs are pumping into transfer windows, because of the threat of relegation being so financially crippling to a club, is it any surprise that we're seeing this huge amount of turnover? No, I don't think so because... I think there is much more to be said about trying to stay up in the Premier League than going down and sort of accepting parachute payments and things like that. I, I just think the way the Premier League is branded right now and just so far above other leagues in Europe and around the world, that it is the pinnacle of football right now. So you want to try your darndest to try and stay up. You've got this opportunity to be playing Premier League football. You don't want to sort of be mulling on a, a manager who's clearly not performing well and sort of always thinking what if so I think you know 10 years now are, are diminishing by sort of months as opposed to sort of like years it's just yeah, if you don't make that impact and I suppose yeah. and the thing is you have like if you get to 100 games now it's, it's it's sort of like you're a long-term manager which is three seasons yeah which is bonkers like the yeah. 100 league games that is um which for me, when you've got clubs that are pumping in 50, 60, 70 to 100 million pounds in a summer transfer window, you owners do expect to see that or like translate to performances yeah. on the pitch. But unfortunately, you have to spend so much just to compete with others that these managers almost, if you're not having this money spent and building squads, then you're just out of the race immediately. And if yeah. you are a weaker manager, regardless of how much you spend, and this is in the case of Lampard, this is in the case of Gerard, um, they spent, even Marsh at Leeds, they spent a fair amount of money in the summer transfer windows between Villa, Everton and Leeds. Yeah. And it has got, well, got them the sack. Obviously, you've got... Um, it's got them four wins in 22 games. Four wins in 22 games, and that's 18 goals scored. Yeah. So that's not even a goal a game. In all fairness, there are other clubs that have scored less than them. So Everton have only scored 16, West Ham have only scored 19, well, only one more, and then Wolves and Forest have only scored 17 apiece. I'll also add that Chelsea have only scored 23, which I only just saw today, which is fun. Wow, they've hilarious. got a goal difference of one. Um, yeah. But yeah, looking at looking at Southampton, did here's Southampton's issues. They spent money on youth to develop, but in the Premier League, you just unfortunately don't get time to develop no. that much. Because if you don't get those results early on, well, Hasenhutl had the chop, and then Jones, as we've said, he's lasted how many days? Uh, well, it's less than a hundred, which we'll less, get onto later. Yeah, so which is absolutely shocking. Um, yeah, I don't. It's... In most instances, I do typically feel sorry for managers when they're not given enough enough time. Like if you're in the job for a sustained period of time and you don't make any developments, then I think you're almost you're fair for the chop and you can't be shot. Yeah. With the likes of Gerard and Lampard, they were in for fair enough stints and they didn't make they didn't make up ground. Yeah. Um. And normally, with a manager, if they're sacked after five minutes, I'd normally feel a little bit sorry for them. But with his endless amount of nonsense excuses, I don't feel sorry for Jones in the slightest. No, no, I, I, yeah, um, pretty much spot on. I, yeah, can't add any more to well, that, really. 
Well, maybe he'll be go back to Luton when they next need a manager because it seems that's the only place where he can get yeah. results. Luton, and then go to another another club for a bit, and then and go then, back to Luton. Yeah. God, he's a yo-yo manager. Have we ever yeah. had that before, where they keep going back to the same club? I don't think so, have we? He's, no. had, he's had two stints, maybe a third. You've had managers that go back to the same yeah. club. Yeah, is there not... a football cliche where he says, don't go back for a third time? Well, maybe it'll work for Jones because yeah. it seems the only place he could have any success. Tom, on this podcast, we don't often talk about the big six because we are the other 14 podcast. However, this week we had some rather shocking news about one of the big six that I have to say I feel I need to address it because, firstly, it's shocking, it's awful. And secondly, the res- disgusting. And the response from some football pundits and commentators, I find absolutely baffling. So, Man City have been charged with breaking financial fair play rules, and this isn't just once. This isn't two breaches. This isn't five breaches. This isn't ten breaches. This is it the is... New, is it the new cricket competition in in, uh, in England? Is it called the hundred by any chance? <laughs> they have breached financial fair play rules around a hundred times over a nine year period, nine which years. is absolutely baffling. So these charges that have come from the Premier League are from two thousand and nine until 2018 so obviously we've still got potentially five more years worth of charges that could come out financial fair rules and fair play rules were introduced to stop teams just spending a huge amount of money in an i would say in an unsustainable way that could result in firstly teams get being disproportionately benefiting from just money being pumped into football yeah but also where we've had instances in the past where clubs have been poorly financially managed and then have ended up going into some level of bankruptcy or being dissolved or the threat dissolved. So we're looking at the likes of clubs that have been fi- financially poorly managed. So we're looking at the likes of Derby um, of recent years. City anyway, mine. These, <laughs> these city breaches, they've had over 100 in nine years. And this is effectively, simply to me, this is financial doping. Yep. Clubs obviously have access to large amounts of revenue streams. So we talk about ticket receipts, which is, makes up, for lower leagues, a significant amount of their income. Yeah. But higher, for larger teams, don't make as much of a percentage of their no. income up. So instead, they rely on sponsorship deals for the most part. Yeah. And one of the clubs that have kind of led the way over years on this is... Manchester United, they were able to diversify their mar- um, their sponsorship portfolio across multiple markets globally to be able to have an Asian energy drinks partner and such and stuff. So they're able to diversify so much that they're able to get a huge amount of money in. And that is what Manchester United have done, is largely acceptable because if you're able to sell your club in a way and market it where you can generate money, then yeah. and you develop a brand, that is largely yeah. considered fair, like, considered fair because it's natural income you're generating exactly however what largely the allegations against man city are and this is where the issues that potentially could become a thing for newcastle in the future 
is that if you're looking at Man City's main sponsor is Etihad Airways, where they pump in a large amount of money into Man City by having the shirt sponsorship. And also the name of the stadium rights is Etihad. The issue there being is that Etihad Airways is a state-owned, or effectively a state-owned airline, but also the owners are the same as the people that own Man City. So we're in an instance where owners aren't just allowed to pump loads and loads of money into their club. So instead, they've done it via sponsorship deals, which is creating a an unnatural increase in revenue for Man City for them to be yeah. able to go, oh, look, we've got all this sponsorship money. But actually, it's their owner just pumping more money into the club. And then we've got other instances where, for example, Manchester City managers have been put on contracts where they're contracted to manage Manchester City for an amount of money. And then they're also being contracted to manage another team abroad for an amount of money. So effectively, they're lowering Manchester City's outgoings by, for example, and this is purely speculation, I don't know what the exact teams are, but these are all the rumours going around, is, for example, they're going... Pep Guardiola, here's £5 million a year to manage Manchester City. And also, here's £5 million to manage a small Emirati team in the UAE. And then Pep doesn't do any work for them. But hey, Pep earns £10 million and Manchester City are only pushing £5 million out in their own. Which, so, either way, they are financially doping. They're They're showing, they're artificially creating income and also using dodgy methods to suppress their expenditure which for me feels absolutely wrong and rotten because they are getting an unfair advantage by exploiting what some could consider loopholes but on the whole are just absolute breaking of the rules yeah and here's my main issue with it obviously man city this is all allegedly as they still need to they'll go to court for this and it'll probably play out over the next five years or so it'll be a long period of time for manchester city to defend themselves against these charges and which case by all means fine but the initial response that i've seen has really ticked me off so the first being go on understandably pep has been interviewed about this which by all means here's the manager he's there to defend the club He's come around and said, because Manchester City had been charged for these sorts of offences by UEFA, UEFA yeah. in previous years. And Man City's defence has been, oh, but we were cleared by UEFA. And that's not strictly true. They were neither found guilty or not guilty by UEFA because the statute of limitations for these charges for UEFA is five years. Yeah. And the charges against Man City by UEFA were yeah. outside that five-year remit. Yeah. So couldn't be taken into account. So effectively, UEFA went, well, we can't do anything about this. So Man City weren't found guilty or not found not guilty because it didn't get that far. Yeah. However, the Premier League don't have that statute of limitations on exactly. when happen. So this is obviously going back to 2009, which is what, 14 years ago now, which is absolutely mad. And they could get charged for these. Now, Manchester City, I understand, trying to defend themselves. On the Friday Night Social on BBC... They had a couple of play, former players and a Man City fan on. And some of the things they said made my blood boil. Firstly, Glenn Murray, who is a classic other 14 player. 
He's had stints at Palace, he's had stints at Brighton, he's had stints at Watford. He is an archetype of the other 14 player. Never yes. more than that, never less than that. So he's turned around and says, and I'm paraphrasing here, you've got to admire what City have done. The players and the managers have been consistent performers over all these years. But yes, Glenn, they have been consistently performing at this level because they've been able to pay horrendously large salaries and horrendously large transfer fees to be able to juice up their squad year after year. They've been able to spend a hundred million. Receiving life-changing sums of money. Exactly. So when you say, well done to the players and management, oh, they've been consistent performers. Yes. But that's like saying a drugs cheat doing the hundred meters sprint game. Yeah, but they ran really fast, didn't they? They have pumped themselves full of something that shouldn't have happened and their performances are obviously going to be high on the output in terms of achievement yeah. because they have cheated. It's like saying the Harlem Globetrotters performed well, didn't they? Oh, yeah, it's because they play exhibition games against absolute nobodies. Exactly. Okay, and the next one, Sean Wright Phillips. You can kind of understand, former City player, XSC, he, yeah. he won an FA Cup under them. And he said, it's the players and the fans that suffer. Well, firstly, these players, I'm sorry, I have no sympathy for Bernardo Silva, who transferred from Monaco for, I want to say, about 50, 60 million pounds and getting paid a hideous amount of money. I don't feel sorry for him because of this. I'm so like, at what point should I feel sorry for the man that moved to Man City? Not because of Man City's history, but because he was receiving one hell of a yeah. paycheck. He's obviously won all these trophies. He's been regarded as an incredibly diet, versatile and high-performing forward over the last four or five years he's been quality but you can't tell me he would be at man city so when who nearly was out the door like a couple of seasons like a season or so ago but when these when these allegations are being thrown at man city going oh they're cheat they're financial cheats they've got all these charges against them i don't really care how bernardo silva feels about all of this i'm taking him as just an example but it's when like talk about having trophies taken away I don't feel sorry for those players. Like if it does happen, I, I can't see that happening. I don't see it happening because it will it will create so much confusion and so I know, much. I know it will and be beyond it exactly. But for me, I don't feel sorry for Bernardo Silva at all. For in this instance, I'm picking his name out. It could be talking about you're really I picking could, on him. <laughs> I could be talking about. I could be talking Laporte. I could be talking about Akanji. I could be talking about Aguero. I could be talking about Fernandinho. Like all these players primarily would not have moved to Manchester City unless there was a huge amount of money for them. They benefited from this unfair financial injection into the club. Yeah. And the final one that really got to me was this Man City fan who came on the show and he was, and I'm not going to do the accent, but he's turned around and said, also, his podcast that he was on is the Big Six podcast. Turns out oh, we've got, we've got rivals. Who knew this? But he said, oh, it's been really tough on social media for a Man City fan. I'm sorry, you've been able to watch some elite level football because your team potentially broke the rules. I'm sorry if you're getting a little bit of stick where people are going, I'm sorry, mate, but your team have been accused of being of cheating. Yeah. Like, at what point are we meant to feel sorry for the Man City fan in this situation? Don't get me wrong, they've got a bit of history. They've got the likes of when... And the Man City fans have been very good. When they used to have um, Main Road, and they had the likes of Sean Goethe. Matt, I, I respect them. 
But at this point, when they've got a bunch of, they do have a lot of, and, uh, and we call it the empty hat. It's so easy to get Manchester City tickets on student discount, even to go yeah. and watch Champions League games. But I don't feel sorry for them. If people are pointing the finger at them for supporting a team that has potentially broken the rules, then I don't feel sorry for them in the slightest because they have benefited to be able to gloat for years after year from this cheating. Yeah, let's not forget that that football doesn't exist. That football also exists outside of social media. And football social media is an absolute cesspit. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? The fans I feel sorry for are the fans of Burnley, of West Brom, of Huddersfield, of Norwich, of Watford, of Cardiff, of Stoke, all teams that have been relegated in recent years and no doubt would have lost six points in a season to Man City, whose squad has been potentially artificially inflated with this absolute outrageous breaking of the rules. They're the ones yeah, I feel sorry for. The, I don't feel yeah. sorry for, oh, look, we've won four Premier Leagues in the last six years. Oh, oh, and now they're saying some mean things about my team. No, look at the teams like Sunderland who have had to go endure back-to-back relegations and slowly fighting their way up the football pyramid of a die-hard fan group who not everyone will like because they're from Sunderland, but they've had to go through the ringer. They've had to experience all the lows of football, being called a couple of names and being and your team yeah. being tarnished a little on social media. Absolutely no sympathy. Maybe spare a thought for the teams that haven't broken the rules and that have been relegated because they haven't been able to artificially inflate their team with talent and have actually been honest and noble. Uh, and yeah. that, and that, I think, concludes Reese's rant for this week. And I'm looking down him from my uh, my webcam now, and I can see visible steam coming out of his ears. So I think um, he deserves a rest a little bit after that. I have one of these every couple of weeks. There's yeah, something yeah. That pisses you do me need off. to get something off your chest here every now and again. I will, I will concur. With I that. feel this was deserved. Yeah. Uh, so city naughty. Tottenham last week was celebrating Harry Kane becoming their all-time goal scorer to distract them from their alarmingly barren run without a real trophy. And with Leicester as their next opponents, they must have been laughing as Kane has scored more league goals against Leicester than any other team. But it was Brendan's Foxes who had the last laugh, despite going one down, having a tight offside call ruled against them, they put Spurs away 4-1. Talk about humiliation. Leicester were assisted by some comically bad defending from Eric Dyer, but they put away some truly perfect finishes. Tom, before the World Cup, we spoke about Leicester being awful and some fans calling for Brendan's head. Is this a sign of a quality resurgence of form and are Leicester heading back to their best? You know what? I'd certainly say so. I think Leicester in that game against Spurs showed exactly what they're all about. And especially under Brendan Rodgers. You know, Brendan Rodgers is known um, during his time in management as someone who can get a lot out of his attacking players and the way they just go about games. And I think if we're looking at Leicester's season as a whole, as it stands right now, you'd definitely say that that was easily their best performance of the year. You know, they go back to back, superb comeback um, against the Spurs side who were would been absolutely buoyed um, by their 1-0 win against City um, last week. But the way that Leicester were playing, just, it feels as though Brendan's just sort of like, t- like tweaked things a-, a-, a little bit. You know, it's just a couple of formation changes here and there, a couple of players playing on a different side. 
Um, and it just seems to have worked absolutely superbly. Ian Acho is now on a three-game scoring streak. Madison, back from injury, is being involved once again. Harvey Barnes, who had a bit of a slow start to the season, is now being becoming more involved. And, you know, we say Brendan Rodgers' side defensively can struggle a little bit at times. He does require certain players to sort of step it up a little bit. But he has got Leicester backfiring and I think that is a huge I think Brendan Rodgers does a huge amount of credit there for sort of sticking with it and the Leicester sort of hierarchy for letting Brendan sort of work his way out of trouble considering you know what he's done for them you know an FA Cup win etc etc um, and having them nearly on the brink of sort of Champions League football um, I did a stats corner in the beginning of the season where I sort of I think Leicester was six games into their season and I sort of looked in sort of previous seasons gone by where teams sort of starting as poorly as they did and what was the likelihood of relegation I think that's well out of the question now Leicester are back it's just now a question of if they can keep that going because Leicester have shown spurts this season but it's all a question about whether or not they can keep that consistency now. And Leicester in previous seasons gone by, their finish to a season has always been sort of at the drop-off. Um, so hopefully now with the way things are going, um, this is just meaning only things up. Or the, on, the only way is up for Leicester at the moment. So they're now sitting in 13th. So there's four teams between them and the drop zone. And they are six points clear of the drop zone at the moment. So it's still pretty tight down there in the grand scheme of things. Um, But compared to the rest of the teams, they've only got a goal difference of minus two, which counts for a lot. Um, I just think the way they've turned it around recently, we doubted them. And you're right, we looked at their performances and they, at the start of the season, they were absolutely dreadful. But... In terms of their recent results, they their last three, they've beaten Tottenham, they've beaten Villa, and they drew with Brighton. So three fairly competent teams that on the whole you yep. would normally say are toward based on this season, well, these are teams that are performing at a high level. Villa since getting rid of Gerrard have been really good. Spurs are obviously in that kind of European battle, and Brighton are one of the high achievers in the other fourteen. Yeah. Um so compared to their absolutely dreadful start to the season, which was, shall we say, embarrassingly poor from their point of view? Where they yeah, just, I think it was, it was a shocking start for Leicester. They couldn't buy a result at that point of the season. So the turnaround has been really impressive to see. Um, just think that it, it's such a different Leicester side from the one that lost 5-2 to Brighton in September. Um, yeah, it's, been it's so- a team full of confidence right now. Well... And last time they played Spurs, they lost 6-2. So from 6-2 yes. to 4-1 is yeah. an absolutely mad transformation. And I think it does go to show, and at no point did I ever think Brendan should have been sacked or was one of them. Well, actually, no, there were. he was probably one of the managers that was most touted. He got close. Being, he got close. It, it was yeah. around the time where Parker was up for... There were questions about Parker, there were questions about Gerrard, there were questions about Lampard for such a long period of time, but he has been able to weather this storm, and as you say, he's been able to get a lot of his team firing who weren't firing yeah. before. Um, if you look at, we'll go into some of the goals for goal of the week, but I think Harvey Barnes has, in recent weeks, kicked on that bit, and he's looking back to his best. James Madison, obviously, coming back from injury, is so I'm lucky with his offside goal as well, that was ridiculously tight. Oh, what Barnes is. Yeah, it was 
yeah, yeah. was silly. Dixly tight. Um, so I think it's been a really good bounce back for them. They do have a couple of tough Premier League games coming up. Um, again, so in their next four, they are playing Manu, Arsenal, Southampton, and Chelsea. So they're not easy games, but after beating, if they can get a couple of results there. Yeah, I think I, I don't ever see them being in danger. But considering no. how bad they did look at the start of the season, they just couldn't defend for their lives. They couldn't put the ball in the back mm. of the net, and it just seems to have turned around a bit. And obviously, it's. Ex- it's particularly funny this week that it was against Spurs and some of the, once again, the Leicester finishing was really good, but some of the Spurs defending was so woeful. Um, yeah, quite embarrassing. It was quite embarrassing for them. Um, but I just think it's really good to see a kind of success story from the other 14 because we have been talking a lot recently about relegation, Yeah, understandably, because the fight is quite tight down there. Um, and almost it gets... a a little bit boring to talk about teams that are consistently performing well, like your Brightons, like your Brentfords, like your Newcastles, to actually yeah. see a team that has transformed. A turnaround story is, yeah. A turnaround story is really good to see. And um, I think it also goes to show that when you've got a quality manager who has proven yeah. that sticking with them is probably the right answer, which has obviously gone in Leicester's favour so far this season. Yeah, absolutely. And a uh, big shout out to a, a new Twitter account that I, I found called Premier League Panel, who noted this um, potential change back in October, trying to put um, go into a 4-3-3 shape with uh, Madison on the left and Iheanacho on the right coming inside on the front. Um, that seemed to play havoc with Spurs at the weekend, especially with, I think it was Madison's, um, was it the, either the equaliser or the second goal that Madison scored? Um, Iheanacho basically feeding Madison from the right over to the left. Madison scoring. Um, yeah, I believe that saw was it like months. Goal, yeah. yeah, saw it months in advance and um, it's clearly worked for them. And yeah, Leicester back. And yeah, Rogers, you know, speaking from experience, um, obviously during his days at Liverpool, attacking wise was always able, especially that 13 14 season, was just um, an incredible season to watch. But defensively has always been the question. And I think. With the change at the back that Leicester experienced at the beginning of this season, obviously losing Kasper Schmeichel in goal, then they've lost Fafana to big money. They lost Chilwell, I think, a couple of years ago. So big names out of their defence over the last couple of seasons. It, it's going to take, you know, a huge scouting network and some successful sort of more hits as opposed to misses in terms of your transfer strategy to bring in players to replace those sort of players. Um, it does have an impact on the side. Uh, Leicester in a couple of seasons have been actually pretty decent defensively, um, but I think it did show at the beginning of the sheet this season. Obviously, Danny Ward had a few hit and misses at the beginning of the season, and you know a couple of calamitous errors uh, leading to goals. Um, but he does seem to have picked himself up slightly now as well. It just seems to I don't want to sort of tempt fate, but just seeing the pieces are gradually starting to come together for Leicester. Yeah, it's really good. Um... And hopefully going forward to their next couple of games, they've got some tricky ones in there and do a job on a couple more of the big six and have their say in what will be the European yeah. chase down and the title run. Um, obviously, we've had some of the other 14 do a little bit of damage to Arsenal's hopes in recent weeks. And maybe they can upset the upper cart by getting a result against Man U next week um, to almost Absolutely. open up a little bit of a gap for Newcastle to progress as well. So after Nathan Jones's abysmally embarrassing tenure as Southampton manager, um, which was 
unbelievably short. You've done a bit of digging into short tenures of Premier League managers for this week's Stats Corner. And welcome to Stats Corner. Yes, Stats Corner here to brighten up your day yet again. Probably not so much for Nathan Jones, as he joined quite a special club, as you've mentioned this week, Reese. So with his departure from the Saints, Nathan Jones has performed an ode to this trust by taking on more than they could chew and joining the Premier League managers who were sacked before they reached 100 days in the job club. I think Liz made it, I think, a grand total of, what, 40-odd days before she uh, left office? She made it about 40 days, but um, worse than a lettuce. Worse than the lettuce, absolutely. So welcome inductee number eight to the less than 100 days in management in Premier League uh, job club. I'm sure there's a better way of I can say that, but... The sub-centurions? The sub-centurions, I like that. So Jones was in charge at St Mary's for a grand total of 95 days. Joining from Luton Town on the 10th of November, ultimately receiving his P45 on the 12th of February, just before Valentine's Day 2. Absolutely brutal. So joining Nathan Jones on that list are some true cult heroes from other 14 days gone by, including the likes of Bob Bradley, who lasted 84 days at Swansea. <laughs> Brad Terry Bobley. Connor. Bad Sorry, Bro- the soccer Brad feature of Brad Bobley and Meg Nuts still gets me every time. Terry Connor, who replaced Big Mick McCarthy uh, at Wolves, but could only last 91 days before he got his marching orders. And who could forget Frank De Boer, who only managed five games at Palace in 2017, a grand total of 77 days in charge at Selhurst Park. Top of this list, though, Les Reed, when he was in charge of Charlton, when they were in the Premier League in 2006, Les got sacked after 41 dreary days, managing only eight games. I think his record was like one win, one draw and six defeats. What did he do? Did he like bang the owner's wife or something to get he, sacked He must have killed quickly. a kitten or something like that, yeah. Um, actually, that turned out to be his only managerial role um, in his career as he took on more behind-the-scenes roles. That was more of his thing at the time. So um, he then became, um, I think a couple of years later, head of football development and vice chair of football at Southampton for eight years, leaving the role eventually in 2018. Other names to join this list are Rennie Muhlenstein of Fulham, um, who lasted a grand total of 75 days. Kike Sanchez-Flores of Watford, 85 days, because of course there has to be a Watford manager in there. And Colin Todd of Derby, who managed 98, so just about sneaked into the sub-Centurion club. Kike so Flores, it, did, who was the Watford manager that managed them twice? It was Kike Sanchez-Flores. Oh, so... I think, I think that was his second spell. Because he had a long stint, and then, the, yeah, because his second yeah. stint, because they brought him in, I can't remember who, from, well, they've had so many. I, I, I don't think his first time around he managed to last an entire season, because no Watford manager does that. I don't think any Watford manager has done that for God knows how long. Have um, any of these managers, and you, you might be going on to tell me, have any of these managers been managed a team in a season where they've not been relegated? Oh, good question. I did not look at that. I think Sw- did, Swansea did get relegated the season that Bob Bradley was yeah. in charge. We I can think... quick, hang on, let's quickly go through them. Um, uh, uh, well, Frank DeBoer obviously got replaced by Roy Hodgson. Oh, they, they kept up. So um, then he was... Uh, Charlton got relegated that season, I think. They Jesus Christ. 
Bob Bradley's been everywhere. So Swansea City was twenty. He was in charge of them in twenty sixteen. I think that was their last season. In, yeah, in that's that seems familiar to being their uh, their relegation season, doesn't it? I so, think Carlos Carvajal managed um, them after that and didn't keep them up. If it was sixteen seventeen, no sixteen seventeen, Swansea stayed up. They got four points and finished fourteenth. Yeah, but who replaced Bob Bradley then? Oh, Paul Clement took permanent charge. Oh, they had, they had a short they had a short stint of Adam Curtis being a um yep. substitute teacher. And then Paul Clement came in from the third of January twenty seventeen to the twentieth of December twenty seventeen and he kept them in the Premier League. So um, it was then that... the following season they then yeah. got yeah. relegated. I, yeah, I vaguely remember that now. Um and then I was sort of talking to because I think when Rene Mullenstein got sacked at Fulham we were talking about this sort of off off camera a couple of days ago when this first came up I think Rene Mullenstein obviously took over from Martin Yole and then Felix Magat the legendary Felix Magat took over from Mullenstein and I was actually surprised that Felix Magat didn't take uh, also wasn't part of this sub sub uh, sub 100 uh, days list because I just had in my head that he um he lasted basically until the end of the season uh, and then got his marching orders. But he did take Fulham into the following season, I think. I can't remember if they got relegated or not that, that year. Yeah, they got relegated um, under him. So He took him into the Championship. Yeah, then, he yeah. took him into the Championship. Magat managed their uh, first four games with four consecutive losses and then was sacked by September. What I remember, from what I remember that, abs- like all the Fulham players at that time just absolutely hated the guy. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, they they got relegated under Magat and they lost to Ipswich, Millwall, Wolves and Derby. And then on the 18th of September 2014, Magat was, was given it. the boot. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, quite a mix of managers there. And unfortunately, Nathan Jones has joined a sorry list as number eight of that list. The, maybe the, the slight bright side of that, he's the first Welsh manager to join that list. It's been a bit of an embarrassing stint for him. What's interesting is where these managers have come from that do have the short tenure, because some of these have a lot of manager previous manager experience, and some yep. of them, and most of them, have not much at all. No, I mean Terry Connor, for example. I think that is literally his only managerial role because he, he most, was, most of the time he is an assistant manager to. He Mick was McCarthy. number he was number two under Mick McCarthy for yeah. ages. So um, obviously, so he I think he joined him at Ipswich. Um, and now is again assistant manager to Mick McCarthy at Blackpool. So is Mick at Blackpool now? Mick oh. is now at Blackpool. Yeah, and oh. also breaking news today: a new, uh, an, a legend of the other fourteen uh, becoming um, another, or actually being reappointed into a, a role that he's previously taken on, is Neil Warnock, who's now the Huddersfield boss. Which... Again, thirty years later from the last time he did it. I think there's some scary stat that um, I'm going to absolutely make a hash of it now, but pretty much all of the squad weren't even born the last time he was when he was Huddersfield manager. Which I mean, I, was, I, I wasn't even born. Thing is, I, I absolutely love Neil Warnock, but he's retired about ten times, hasn't he? I feel like he, he basically promised to like literally the last time he, he retired, he said to his wife, "No, that's it. You know, we can spend more time with you." And, and uh, like, she must be very forgiving, his wife. Or she really does. Or every now and then she, or maybe while like, he's managing, she's to, like, to, I do miss Neil, him. You need and to get then, out of the house. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> golf's not taking up enough time of his yeah. day. He's too Neil, good. He gets around too quickly. Yeah. She's like, four Neil, hours isn't out. good enough. I want you gone for long. Go manage. Or, 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 
or he gets to the knife and just said, I've had enough of this, like we do. I hard to feel doing particularly bad to yeah. want him. So, yeah. but you know what? Good manager. If you've got a decent squad and they just need to have that motivational and that pet, like, and that, like, kind of perk up, he is a good manager for it because he's a very personable character. Tactically, he might not be the best, but he will get the, he yeah. will be able to motivate players in a way to get them performing. So, um, fair play to him getting the job. Yeah, so. I think I think I've got a lot of reaction to that. Basically, just saying, yeah, it's a win-win situation. Yeah, there's nothing really that can go wrong with that. If we go down, we go down. It's not his fault. So yeah, that concludes this week's edition of Stats Corner. Tom, you always keep an eagle eye on these sorts of things, and I've decided not to fire you from your job as arbiter of quality goals after last week's slight. It was a bit of a dip in form for me. It was a bit of a dip in form, but it is goal of the week. Goal of the week. So a little, little nod to the Super Bowl there with the eagle eye. I like that. Unfortunately, the Eagles did not win, but there is that. Um, there also, well, that was not intentional. So, Tom, we had goals pretty much everywhere with almost all of the other 14, apart from Leeds and Forest bagging goals this game week so which ones really caught your fancy so there's quite a few that um sort of stare out at me recent i've got about on my little shortlist i say little i've got seven at the moment that i'm gonna have to dwindle down and actually a few of them coming from the same games so clearly the quality of goals from these teams were pretty good over this last game week I'm going to start off um, with the lunchtime kickoff on the Saturday and it is Emerson's against Chelsea. I'm loving the little uh, little nod flick on from Jared Bowen and Emerson against his former team to hammer home the equaliser. I thought it was a, a lovely little finish. As someone that was at that game, I'm glad you saw that as a bright spark of their game because the rest of the game was absolutely awful to watch. It was just a game that absolutely lacked in quality. So the fact that you've been able to pick out a small diamond in the rough from there, I'm quite impressed because I wanted to purge that whole 90 minutes out of my mind because it was that dull. Well, I'm reminding you of you with this uh, with this nomination for Goal of the Week. So there is that. Thank you. Um, next up, we've got Williams' goal against Forest. Now, I think it's... William in that game was instrumental to pretty much everything that Fulham did. And he put in a vintage performance and his goal pretty much summed that up. I mean, he was twisting, turning left and right. And there was a, like, he was quite sort of hounded by a couple of Forest defenders. But then he's just absolutely picked his spot beautifully, a little outside, um, sort of far-sided uh, bender into the top left, um, past Kalon Navas to put uh, Fulham deservedly 1-0 up. Um, and then Solomon's goal also versus Forrest, um, fine finish um, to basically just kill off the game. Um, it was woeful defending from Forrest. I think the ball just effectively fell to Solomon. Forrest players shifted off to the right. He was off to the left and he just put it into the back of the net. Clinical finish and um, yeah, killed the game off. Then you got Mendes against Spurs. I've literally, in my notes, literally just got one word for this and that is Thunder bastard. Yep. You knew that. Um, that yeah, there's nothing much much more I can say. That. I love a thunder bastard. Um, sort of reminded me a little bit of Danny Rose's goal when he first came onto the scene against um Arsenal 
where yeah. he just twatted it's, it from he, the yeah, outside he, of the box. He ste- it's the way he just steps on. It's runs to it's, it and just. It's always it. nice when you see a goal where the player comes almost from off screen. Yeah, into you can frame just predict and the, what's going to happen. Like he put absolutely everything through it, and yep. I know that Tottenham are without their first choice goalkeeper, and um, Fraser Forster didn't have his best game in the Tottenham shirt. But that was not. You could have put four goalies in goal, and no oh. one was getting that. The power behind it, and absolutely put his laces through it. Absolutely, it was a tremendous hit. Um, well, nearly set ripped up. the net off. Uh, it was well set up, and just step onto and mm, yeah, just it. It makes you feel things. That sort of finish. Yeah, yeah. I I, I definitely felt things watching that. Um, I've mentioned this guy already. This pod uh, that is Kalechi Nacho against Spurs basically was a one-man wrecking ball for his goal, just ran onto it, ended up into the uh, Spurs penalty area, had players around him, had a lot to do, and then just somehow sticks it past Fraser Forster um, to basically extend Leicester's lead against Spurs, against a very sorry Spurs, as we've already discussed. And then Harvey Barnes was a very sort of similar goal to that. Uh, so if I've given it to Ian Acho as a nomination, I've got to give it to Harvey Barnes. Clinical finish, um, again, questioning... Uh, Fraser Forster's ability he might have, could have done potentially a little bit better but you know you're understudy to Hugo Lloris you don't play every week so there is that honourable mention does go to Jan Bednarek with his own goal I mean I, again one word note in that uh, Python-esque if that even does count as a um, as a word it was just calamitous defence like just yeah, it was it was a classic Premier League going goal if there ever was one. He he looked like he was wearing roller skates on yeah. sheet ice. He was rolling. It's the fact that he goes to turn and he just yeah. stumbles into it. And you do feel, you do feel sorry. I mean, he just couldn't get the ball out of his feet. And it just like I'm just, I'm, I'm I'm taking like his like his interior monologue would have just been I'm taking this ball nearer to goal. I cannot get it away from me. Help, help. Oh, well, it's in the back on, of the on net. On the other end of quality defending, obviously he ended up giving a goal to the opposition. Um, Kieran Trippier's goal line block against Oh, fantastic. That, Absolutely fantastic. That, that's, that like, is the sort of block that's uh, it's as good as a goal in terms of the feeling you get. The way he yeah. the way he stops it, controls it pretty much on the line and then like takes the touch and plays it out. Yes. Yeah. Admittedly, just hoofs it for a throwing. But that is once again and he's such Stella a good piece of player. defending. We think about his free kicks, but defensively, he is so sound. Everyone yep. wrote him off after he came back from Atletico. But once again, that is that is the sort of thing that keeps Newcastle's run just going. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I love the sort of Bournemouth players sort of like trying to, you know, protest with the referee about, you know, whether or not that crossed the line. I mean, we've pretty much guaranteed now that Hawkeye is near enough foolproof, minus maybe one incident every sort of couple of years. Mm. So, you know, was like it was just clear to show that it was a fantastic piece of defending. Um, so well done, Kira Trippy there. So now I've got the difficult decision of coming up with goal of the week, and there's some fantastic contenders in there. So I think I've narrowed it down to two. Um, okay, I'm debating between William and Mendy. You know, I I, I, I think I, they're both watching watching match of the day as I do. They're the two that I noted down best. I think Williams, the way he just shuffled about, sold the defenders and put it right in the postage stamp um, was just, it's the sign of a quality yeah. forward who knows his own ability. And just Mendy's just, it's the euphoria of a strike like that, just yeah. stepping onto it and just 
Oh, to be honest, I think both are special in their own way. In that Williams is obviously so well crafted, while Mendy's is just a case of I'm just going to rocket this into the fourth dimension. Um, I'm I'm glad it's your decision this week because I do not know which I prefer. I think both are quality and both deserve something. It's so tough. Um... Exact your your thought process there is exactly what I'm going through. Williams technically perfect, literally had a a penny in like in target size of, of a penny to aim for, and he nailed it. Hmm. And then Mendy just twatted the ball. I've written down Thunderbars, as you know. You know what? Sod it. I'm gonna do something that I haven't done this season. Oh, well, and I'm, I'm gonna give it to both of them. <gasps> You're giving a joint goal of the week. This I've given a joint goal of the week. Heard of. Yeah. Um, and Just because they were both that good. They both tick the criteria of goals in winning games as well. So yeah. um, I think completely fair play. They're, they're different goals. They're hard to separate, but I, I agree I just with can't you. separate them. They are both fantastic strikes in their own way. Um, so, I, okay. I, you know, I, I do rule with an iron fist on goals of the week, but I am a bit of a giver sometimes as well. So okay. there is well, that. Well, congratulations, Mendy and William, for receiving joint Goal of the Week honours. So, Tom, it wasn't our finest week of Fab Four predictions. It really wasn't, was it? In the FF matchup with Fulham v Forest, we both saw Fulham at home getting all three points, and we were both somewhat close to the full result, with you going for a 2-1 win and me going for a 3-0 we neither of us were that far off, um, so we both got a point for that. However, neither of us saw Palace versus Brighton being one all, with you giving the home team the win, and I thought the Seagulls were going to do the job. And then Southampton v Wolves, we both thought would be a draw, given both teams' poor performance. However, it was Wolves that came out on top with that 2-1 win, thanks to them going down to 10 men. And then Bournemouth, Newcastle. Once again, we thought Eddie Howe's men were on such a strong run of form. We did not foresee Gary O'Neill's men holding them to the one-all draw. So in terms of changes to our season's results so far, you have 27 points and I am sitting slightly ahead still on 30. And before, three points we, and before we go on to predict our next round of fixtures, Tom... Can you please tell us what games we have to look forward to in the next game week? These are the fixtures for game week 24 of 38. So we've got the lunchtime kickoff on Saturday. It's Aston Villa against Arsenal. Emery up against his former side. We have the beginnings of the three o'clock. We've got Brentford taking on Crystal Palace in a London derby. We've got Wolves taking on Bournemouth. Brighton take on Fulham, Everton host Leeds, and Chelsea host Southampton. Nottingham Forest also play host at the city ground to Manchester City. The evening kickoffs on the Saturday, we have Newcastle against Liverpool looking for revenge for their only league defeat of the season. And then we move to Sunday, we have Manchester United going up against Leicester City, and it's the London derby in the 4.30 kickoff on Sunday. It is Tottenham against West Ham. Well, we have some absolutely great fixtures to look forward to there, particularly looking at Newcastle hosting Liverpool. Obviously, 
Liverpool not on a strong run of form compared to when the teams uh-uh. met at the start of the season. Um, can Newcastle grind out another draw? <laughs> um, then we have, well, Emery welcoming his old club is, of course, extremely interesting. And then we do have a couple of, well, going back to last week's Stats Corner, Tom, a couple of those battles in and around the bottom nine teams that really could play pivotal in this season's table with Wolves inviting Bournemouth, which is really interesting, and then the Everton-Leeds game as well, where hopefully by then Leeds will actually have appointed a new manager. Still yet to be appointed as we speak. Mm. So, the games we have picked for Fab Four, we have Brentford versus Palace, we have Wolves v Bournemouth, Brighton v Fulham, and Everton v Leeds. And for pretty much all of these, I can't think of a single player that's played for both teams in any of these instances. There's no one that comes to mind for Brentford Palace. Wolves v Bournemouth, once again, no one that comes to mind. Brighton v Fulham. Zamora didn't have a spell at Brighton, did he? He did. Bobby Zamora, he started pretty much off at Brighton. Yeah, Bobby Zamora played for Brighton. So yeah. Oh, okay, we found the Bobby Zamora derby. Fantastic knowledge that. And then Everton v Leeds. Oh, oh must that's be a, it must be someone. Must be some, yeah, but it's going to be someone from the 90s, isn't it? Who we're probably not as up to date in terms of. Did Mark Viduka have a spell at Everton? I was thinking Mark Viduka, but I don't think he did no, play for Everton at all. He didn't. No, Mark Viduka did come into my mind as that kind of classic uh, Leeds player. player he was. Okay, anyway, let's get straight to it. So, Brentford versus Palace. Brentford, obviously, on that strong run of form. Um, unfortunately, only got the point at the Emirates, but going to the top place team in the league, it is a good point. And then Palace, oh, this is the start of their kind of rotten run of fixtures where they yeah. have some tough ones. So they really need to get the three points in this London derby. Yeah, absolutely. Tough place to go to Brentford right now. Palace, not exactly in the strongest run of form, don't typically go well away from home. I can only realistically see Brentford winning in this case. I'm going to go for a... I'm going to go for Brentford 3, Palace 1. Oh, 3-1. I'm going for the same margin of victory, but I'm going for a 2-0 Brentford win. Thomas Frank's men are just so consistent at home and their goal-scoring form is just phenomenal. Wolves versus Bournemouth. So this is really a battle at the bottom. Lopetegui has turned things around, though, for Wolves in the short term. Bournemouth, though, did put up a good performance against Newcastle, as you've just mentioned. Where do you think this is going? Wolves um, against, the like we did last week, looking at it, bottom nine, Wolves are strong at home against those teams. I think... It will still be the case in this matchup. I am going to say a Wolves 1, Bournemouth 0 results. 1, 0. Um, oh, this is a really tight and close one. And if I had any sense, I would go back and find your last week's stats corner to see how... It's also because I think basically every other game that Wolves have won at home this season against the bottom nine have been one nils. Is that true? So Wolves have won so far three of their four home games to these bottom half teams while yeah Bournemouth aren't particularly good away 
oh this i really want to go to an upset here just to kind of do something different do the different you play the differential but the thing is i have the lead and i don't need to pay the differential and i just don't see bournemouth getting that elusive away win they just really struggle so i am going to go for a 2-0 wolves win okay um then in the bobby zamora derby so thank you for reminding me of that you we have brighton v fulham um this is probably the highest both teams have ever been when they've had to face each other. So these are the two darlings of the other fourteen, I think, right now, or one of the one of the two. Yeah, dar- they're, like, they're both like in all fairness, the them these two Brentford and Newcastle being up there, but it's a this is a tough one. It's going to be a good game. You'd like to think so. like I think it, it in my mind it's going to be a goal fest, and because both teams are pretty good defensively, but they do like to concede. They, yep. But both up top, you've got Brighton, who just their forward line are phenomenal. And then... Sancho's made a howler this week as well. Oh, that was bad. And then you've got the Mitrovic force, who hasn't necessarily been scoring as much as he normally would, but... He's due one. He's due one. Uh, oh, I'm awesome. going to go McAllister for... McAllister had a host of chances. Oh, he did have so many week. chances. He didn't put one away, so he'll be mad. He'll be one to I'm going to go for a two-all. I fancy a draw. I fancy a score draw. I'm going two-all. I don't want to separate these teams. I also fancy that. And I do think it's going to be an entertaining game. Defences might just go out of the window here a little bit. Um, I think... I was thinking too, but then again, I've got, I think being that I'm chasing at the moment, I've got to play with a chance card. And I think maybe one team might sneak it. And I think that team's going to be Brighton. And what, where do you think? I think that's that's probably a bit more sensible. I'm going to go 3-2 Brighton. Still going for a goal fest, isn't he? Yeah. And then finally, we have Everton at home to Leeds. Obviously, Everton had that big dice bounce against Arsenal, um, but we don't know how they've got on against yeah. this. This purely depends Arsenal on what the Merseyside Derby... And then Leeds have obviously had back-to-back games against Manchester United with getting one point from the two fixtures. Um well, it's a relegation special, isn't it? It's yeah. it's a classic. Both it's a classic six pointer. Whoever loses this, let's have a look at the table. It swaps well, Everton are on 18, Leeds are on 19, Leeds yeah. are without a manager. Oh. Again, I don't good know. game. I don't know, Jeff. This is a tough one. Um I just think Everton at home, they've got Goodison, they've got Big Die Show, I and Leeds will be at a bit of a loss unless they bring in someone really defensively tight as a manager. If they unless they bring in someone like a Rafa, but then Rafa going mm-hmm. to Goodison would be really interesting. I'm gonna go for an Everton. I can't go 2 0 again because I've got two 2 0s already. So I'm gonna go for an Everton 1 0 win. Everton 1-0 win. I'm just going to have a look, quick look at Leeds away record. Leeds Is away record right? against teams in and around them. They've played for, <laughs> played lost, for uh, one, one draw, three one, losses, yeah, conceded won, seven. One. So again, well, Everton think... at home played six, one, two, drawn one, lost three, and they yeah. only scored seven. So it's pretty tight between them. Yeah, I, I just think Dyche is going to set out still. Um, doesn't matter what the Merseyside uh, derby result is going to be. I think he's just going to, you know, 
Liverpool was just you know it's a nice to see. Um, you know the the big bucks are where sort of playing the teams in and around them as we discussed last week. So I think this is going to be definitely the game uh, for them. I would also have thought one nil, but I, you know what I I do think Leeds will score because um, I've got a couple of goal scorers sort of in and around a bit of form right now. Uh, they'll be disappointed with the result against United uh, when they kept them out for pretty much the majority of the game. Uh, but I think I'm going to say an Everton two leads one result. So I've got I've gone all home home wins oh. this week. Well, they are some fixtures that we have predicted, and well, the only way to find out how we'll do is by listening to next week's episode of the podcast. And with that, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Other 14 podcast. So thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode with Tom and myself. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on your platform of choice. And do recommend us to your friends, family and other 14 fans. You can also, of course, follow us on our social media platforms such as twitter and instagram and our link tree will be in the podcast description so tom thank you very much for joining me on this week's episode we've had uh we've had a lot to talk about and i think it's yep. been somewhat therapeutic for me so thank you for joining me that's you're very much welcome and uh well it's goodbye from me and it's a goodbye from me and we'll see you next week on the other 14 podcast Turn. <laughs>